this is Dr. Reeves welcoming you to week four of our course, EDEM 6629 Children's Literature and Integrated Arts. Last week, we looked at phonological awareness using rhyming text to design and teach performance integrated instruction to support phonological awareness, and then planning um, detailed content instruction for the body part of the lesson with drama and rhyming texts. This week, we're going to look at a wonderful transitional text, Zoe and Sassafras, book one, Dragon and Marshmallows. And we're going to use this fast-paced 21st century story as a great text to mine vocabulary from. This week, you'll also hear from structured literacy expert, Anita Archer, who gives some really wonderful examples of how to teach vocabulary explicitly. And she uses routines that can be accomplished or completed in just a few minutes, but that really increase the chances that students can commit the words to long-term memory attach them to personal background knowledge, and increase the likelihood that students can or will pull those words into new or different context beyond the lesson or the book um, where the book was taught. And that's really what we want to see. Experts like Anita Archer, Robert Marzano, and Jeff Swires all essentially point to academic language as being at the center of the elusive achievement gap. And this becomes more and more apparent as students move into upper elementary and on into middle school. Academic language is not only memorizing long lists of vocabulary words in all the different content areas. Content vocabulary must be where, paired with, as Zwyers says, the smaller words and grammatical conventions that make the big words stick together and make meaning. So teaching vocabulary explicitly is very different from lesson planning that uses vague language like we will review vocabulary or we will go over vocabulary or where we see young people's word knowledge being evaluated only with multiple choice or fill-in-the-blank quizzes without clear and meaningful connections to the text or the student's own context. Developing word knowledge, however, which plays a significant role in comprehension, is a far more complex piece of the literacy framework that needs greater attention than it is typically given. When we select vocabulary, we want to consider if it's likely a term a student might encounter again and again in other contexts, and if the word is critical to the student's ability to comprehend the story or text at hand. When we intentionally select words to study, like we're going to do this week, it's much easier to choose three, or four, three to five words per day during a unit of study, for example, rather than giving students random lists of 10 to 20 words to memorize and define. So we're sticking with our Teachers Creating Readers framework, and we're looking really at two aspects. Know their students' reading enthusiasm and needs, and know the and use strategies to engage students in reading. And particularly this week, we're thinking about reading comprehension. And then again, an overarching aspect of that framework is for teachers to know children's and young adult literature that they can use instructionally to accomplish these goals. So let's begin with knowing students' reading enthusiasms and needs. Simply put, the more teachers read, the better they are able to match students with books that the students will feel excited and motivated to read or to listen to. And we read for all kinds of purposes, and those purposes have to be really clear to young people. For example, the type of reading we do in a phonics lesson may be very different from the type of reading that we do in a comprehension lesson. If my young reader is still working with CVC, short vowel, closed syllable words in our phonics lessons, I know when we are applying what we learned in a phonics lesson to reading that the books we practice with should also be decodable, 
short vowel CVC books like the Bob books, for example. If I have a reader who is still working with CVC words, but I have chosen a book for them to read that has CVE words, multiple syllable words, and irregularly spelled words, then I have not used a systematic approach to select the book, and the book I am working with is likely not a decodable book appropriate for the student at their level. We are seeing more and more available decodable books that should be short stories with high quality content and engaging illustrations. And when teaching phonics, it's important that students have opportunities to practice their phonics skills with texts that correspond with the student's phonics knowledge. As they move systematically forward, the types of decodable books will become more integrated with more complex word sounds and syllables. I'm not going to jump too far into this at the moment, but leveled books and decodable books are not the same thing. In short, though decodable books have a singular focus on one particular phonics pattern, while leveled books combine specific phonetic patterns, sentence fluency, and vocabulary in a particular text. And so the reasons that you read those books are very different. And leveled texts are not especially helpful when you have young people um, who are working on developing their phonics skills. So if your school moves into the new science of reading frameworks that we're seeing more and more of, you will likely see more and more decodable books and fewer leveled readers in your classrooms. Level readers can be useful, but they aren't necessarily useful when you're trying to teach systematic phonics. The reading experience of young people, however, doesn't have to and should not end with decodable books or phonics lessons. Generally, elementary literacy box sh blocks should include phonemic awareness, phonics instruction, explicit vocabulary instruction, and content-specific strategy instruction for beautiful, engaging books. Impactful strategy instruction should include practices like the types of activities we saw in the fantastic Maybe Something Beautiful Teacher's Guide. While a young person might be at the CVC words in their own reading, their listening comprehension may be far greater. And so decoding, even when we make it interactive and multisensory, for example, sometimes does not feel very fun. And while the stories are getting better, they aren't necessarily the most exciting. And so we want to augment that phonics instruction with literacy explorations that allow us to pair up meaningful comprehension strategy work with engaging text when possible and to integrate those explorations with art. And this is where the teacher's knowledge of children's literature really comes into play. When I look at the teacher's guide for Maybe Something Beautiful, for example, I feel pretty excited and inspired about reading that book with my students because the guide engages them in authentic explorations into the story world. And it also explicitly attempts to help students draw connections between the story and their own lives. It accomplishes this by looking at the author's language, the illustrator's pictures, and the settings and characters that make the story unique. It invites students to talk together about their connections and experiences and intentionally highlights aspects of the book where art integration can bring students even further into the literary world. We want to extend students' content knowledge by intentionally selecting interesting stories that cultivate the imagination, curiosity, and critical thinking. So our book this week, Zoe and Sassafras, is also a 21st century story and is a great example of transitional texts that give us a story world that also uses words that students will encounter again and again in other contexts. 
This book might be a good match for developing readers and for a read aloud, but it would not be a good example of a decodable book for phonics instruction for our student we talked about earlier who's uh, working on CVC closed syllable words right now. But for this engagement, we're thinking about 21st century stories with 21st century characters who get caught up in an adventure that will resonate with our students. Not all young people are ready for make-believe and not all young people know that when authors write fiction, they can create familiar scenes like a mom who goes away on a trip and a girl who has a pet cat and combine those familiar scenes with magic and mystery to draw us into the wonders of the young characters. So it's valuable to talk with students about make-believe and fiction and to identify things that are real and things that are imagined for the enjoyment of the reader. Sometimes transitional books like Zoe and Sassafras are also referred to as high-low books or books that are high interest with low readability demands. So the story is written on topics that are interesting and exciting for a young reader and are conveyed using shorter sentences, fewer pagers, and more controlled vocabulary and language. These books are one genre of stories that are great for intentionally selecting vocabulary words to teach and explicit vocabulary instruction are among the strategies good readers need to be successful. Beck, McEwen, and Kukan advocate for selecting useful words for instructional attention. And by useful, they mean high utility words that students might use in multiple contexts. These words they call tier two words are words that are likely to appear in a wide variety of texts that students will encounter again and again in school and in life, but may not often be used in oral language. So for example, when we're working with tier two words, we want to create interesting scenarios where students can try out and use those words and speak about them in conversation. For example, on page 12 of the Zoe and Sassafras book, the word trembling appears, and the word trembling gives us all kinds of clues about how Zoe is feeling in this particular instance in the text. So after reading or pausing while reading, we might reshare the passage where the word trembling is used and then have students say the word with us a few times. Again, Dr. Archer models this wonderfully with the word concentrate in the video required for the engagement this week. So be sure to circle back and look at that again when you have a chance. Trembling is a two-syllable word, trim, bling. Look for your vowels to find your syllables. And we'll have one scoop under trim and one scoop under bling. And by scoop, I kind of mean those U's that you'll see in Dr. Archer's video that help students divide the syllables. And we'll want to say that a few times with students slowly and then increase the speed with which we say the word all together. Trim, bling, trim, bling, and then all together quickly, trembling. And then we want to create and share a kid-friendly definition of the word. And one definition we might use is when your body shakes with fear or excitement. And then let's come up with some examples that relate to our students' context. If the oven was so hot that my hand was trembling when I pulled the pizza out, trembling means, and you might help them um, define what trembling means, or they might even have a little hand movement that they would use to show trembling because you're scared that your hand might get burned because the oven was so hot. Or you could say the oven was so hot that my hand was trembling when I pulled the pizza out. Why was their hand trembling? How do you know? Another example, when my brother jump scared me after a scary movie, 
My whole body was trembling. Why was their body trembling? How do you know? Or if my body began trembling after my brother jump scared me, trembling means, and maybe you'll have students stand up and perform what trembling might mean after you've been scared. And then to continue, now let's say the word again in the definition, trembling. And that word means when your body shakes with fear or excitement. If I say my voice was trembling when I had to speak in front of the whole school, how do I feel? Tell somebody next to you. If I say my hands were trembling as I picked up my new puppy, how do I feel? Talk to someone next to you. Okay, now let's think together. Have you ever seen someone trembling when it was cold outside? Can you show me how that might look? Have you ever performed a song or played music in front of a group of people and felt your body trembling? Why do you think your body trim was trembling? If someone tells you they were trembling with fear at the top of a new bike ramp, how do they feel? Teaching vocabulary explicitly lays the groundwork for academic conversations. Anita Archer's explicit vocabulary method emphasizes discussion and talk. Her method disrupts the practice of vocabulary instruction that goes straight to write a definition, look up a definition, write a sentence, fill in the blank, and instead uses practices that include guided scaffolded talk that connect the uses and meaning of the word to students' real lives. This type of talk prepares students for academic conversations in which teachers offer clear communication goals that build students' ability to listen actively, create, clarify, support ideas, and evaluate content. According to Zwyers, one of the reasons we need to use academic conversations, even in elementary school and starting as early as kindergarten, is because many young people, and the rest of us too, communicate more and more through screens. And without face-to-face -face talk, chat, conversations, and encounters, the quality of human interactions has deteriorated and our ability to listen with empathy, negotiate meaning together, and share ideas have also deteriorated. Zwyer's work is concerned with building academic vocabulary for all students, and he's especially concerned with building academic vocabulary for young people who have been academically underserved and also for young people who are learning English as an additional language. So the more we talk with students in intentional ways and the more we choose intentional vocabulary and teach it explicitly, the better prepared students are for the com complexities they'll encounter as they move through school and through life. Here's some food for thought. Some languages do not use pronouns and other languages do not have a passive voice construction. In some ways, this is lucky because we are often told as writers not to write in passive voice. But the flip side of that is that many science text articles and textbooks used in schools are written in passive voice. So when we approach teaching through a sociocultural lens and we recognize the backgrounds, abilities, and experiences that our students have, we recognize that our work has to be responsive to what students bring to the table and also make space for them to learn about the uses and functions of tier two words and academic language in school. So let's recap a little bit. When we intentionally select books and read them with our students, 
we have greater insights into the types of words to select and study together. It's possible that young people may have encountered words like trembling before, but it's a strong example of a tier two word with multiple meanings across areas, across content areas as, as well. So it's worth our instructional time. Motivation also plays a role here. When students want to know what happens next and are so excited to see the resolution of a story, then we have a unique opportunity to build some language study with direct application to finding out what happens next. So this week we're gonna read this wonderful book and then you all are going to design some explicit vocabulary instruction for three important words from a chapter that you choose in the Zoe and Sassafras book. I'll look forward to seeing the words that you select and the instructional choices you make for bringing these words to life for your students. See you all on Canvas. <laughs>